You're a good, good father It's who you are It's who you are It's who you are And I'm loved by you It's who I am Sometimes that feels discouraged, so I'm going to sing like Ethan did and say, sometimes that feels discouraged, all right, and things his work in vain, then comes Father's Day. I wish to pause and say to all fathers, happy Father's Day. We have an amazing father in the person of God, our Heavenly Father. But let's pray before we begin. Our Father, may the words of my mouth, may the words of my lips, the fruit of my lips, be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, my God, my Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Have, well, first of all, do you not know that our Heavenly Father, have you not heard that our Heavenly Father, that He is the everlasting, the eternal God, Jehovah, the creator of the ends of the earth, who does not get weary. He does not become fatigued. His understanding is unfathomable, immeasurable, inestimable, inscrutable. That's our Heavenly Father. What an amazing Father we have. We say our Father who art in heaven. Holy, deified, consecrated, hallowed be thy name. Now, right at the outset, we must remember that not everybody can say our Father. Jesus taught his disciples in John chapter 8, verse 43 and 44, and he said that those who refuse to follow him, he said these words, and I quote, if God were your father, you would love me, for I proceed and came forth from God. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. God the Father is only God or father to those led by the spirit of his son. And in Romans 8, chapter 15, verse 16, we read these words. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is the Spirit himself bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Now, there are two reasons why I begin this morning's brief time with you with the fatherhood of God. One is that I believe that all human fatherhood should be patterned after the divine fatherhood. The overarching guide for every father should be to live in such a way that his children can see what God the Father is like. They ought to see in their human father a reflection, notwithstanding our imperfection of what the heavenly father is, in his strength and in his tenderness. 
in his acclamation and in his condescension, in his wrath and in his forgiveness, in his surpassing wisdom and in his guiding patience. I say again that the task of every human father is to be for his children an image of the Father in heaven. This other reason, or the second reason, is whether you are here this morning as a father or having a father who is currently alive or not, it's not. This message does apply to you as well. I want to make it abundantly clear that from the outset that some person may have a sense or feeling of sadness because their father is no longer with them. Maybe it's because you will not be the father that I'm about to describe. Or maybe your father was not the father that I will describe. These feelings of sadness can be swallowed up and be overcome with joy this morning, right here in this sanctuary, right now. The eternal life can be yours because God's offer of his fatherhood to anyone who will accept the gift of adoption by trusting Jesus Christ alone, by faith alone. Now, I need to say right at this outset that a few weeks ago, I was arrested by Officer Thompson Rogers. Um, and she told me that I had a certain time limit to speak. I'm trying to break out of the handcuffs so that I'm no longer attached to the time limit. But I will be brief nonetheless. So if time permits me, allow me to drive fast. So this is going to be a hit and run. Um, so no officer will pursue me. But I want to start off by simply going quickly just to describe you maybe some attributes as a backdrop of our Heavenly Father. And so I want to use as a quick way of doing so by using the letters of the alphabet. A simply tells me that he is almighty alpha. B tells me that he is blameless in his beauty. C tells me that he is compassionate creator of all. D tells me that he is the desire of the nations. E tells me that he is the effulgence or the brightness of eternity. F tells me that he is the forgiving father. G tells me that he is God, my guardian. What a protection that is. H tells me that he is our holy healer. I tells me that he is our invincible inheritance. J tells me that he is a justifier of the redeemed. K tells me, of course, he is king of kings. And L tells me that he is Lord of lords. M tells me that he is majestic in his majesty. N tells me that he is a name above all names. O tells me that he is omnipotent, the omega. He is P tells me that he is powerful, the powerful potentate. And Q tells me that he is quintessential in his love. R tells me that he's regal in his righteousness. S tells me that he's our sovereign shield. T tells me that he's transcendent teacher. U tells me that he's unique in the universe. V tells me that he's our victorious vine. W says he's wonderful, he's wise, and he's indeed worthy. Y tells me that he's indeed Yahweh. Z tells me that he is zealous. I know I missed out X, but that's exactly what he needs to be and what he is to us. Amen? Amen. Joshua tells me in 24 verse 15, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. This statement was not my father's mantra for my family that I grew up in. That honor is attributed to my mother. 
My father said to me nine words to me when I formally told him that I was about to marry his first daughter-in-law. These are the nine words he said. Make sure you take care of that woman child. <laughs> I haven't forgotten. This morning, I want to talk to you about briefly with the Assistant Commissioner of Police. Not really. I want to talk to you about ACP. It's found in Colossians chapter 3, verse 21. These are the words, nine words, not exactly the nine words that my father said to me. Colossians 3:21. Fathers, provoke not your children, lest they become discouraged. Fathers, provoke not your children, lest they become discouraged. The A is the address. This is addressed to fathers. If you read the previous verses in this chapter, you would have seen some admonition to the family, to the children obeying your parents. But then, here in verse 21, Paul explicitly extracted emphasis to the father. I call this the father factor. Fathers are important. God thinks that fathers are important. That's why he placed them in families. You, we, despite our, the multiplicity of our imperfections, we fathers are to live before our children that they would see and develop an appreciation for who God truly is. How a father thinks, how he walks, how he talks before his children can affect the child's trajectory in life. Therefore, the greatest gift you can give your children as a father is to think and to walk and to become a child of God. That's the greatest gift you can give your children. Unfortunately, during my formative years, my dad was not my default setting when it comes to morality or spiritual matters. I need to say in case some people may think otherwise. I love my father. I love my father dearly, who would have passed now these 14 years ago. As I mentioned, my morality, my spiritual upbringing was not gained from my father. Someone has once said that it is relatively easy to become a father, but it is another matter to father a child. What about personality and genetics? Some people who knew me and my dad tells me that I walk like my dad. Some people who know his voice would tell me that I sound like him. Some people call my house and tells me that my son sounds like me. Some people call, when I call my brother, I think he sounds like me, even though I don't know how I sound. But something that has something to do with maybe genetics. Some of you have been told that you look like your father. You have your father's eyes. You have some other features about your father's, whether it's his disposition, his temperament, or whatever. Fathers are important. God believed that there is such a thing as the father factors. The life you live today as fathers will be the prison or the palace your children will live in tomorrow. That is important. I would have shown you a picture of the house that I grew up in that my father built, I'm told, with his own hands that he left to us, his children. But that's the one you can see. 
that is made out of things that will perish, but those other things that you build into the lives of your children that you cannot see, how you live, how you think, those things that you value, those things are much more important. The second thing I want you in this quick drive through would be not only the address to the fathers, but the command. Why did, what did God say? He says this, provoke not your children. Now, what in the world is provoke? Now, I remember as being short, some people say, don't provoke me, man. You know, or some people say, you are provoking me. What does that mean? Well, I went and asked Webster, you know, it means to incite, to excite, to aggravate, to inflame, to challenge, or even to fight. How can you tell when somebody is being provoked? Can you read their facial expression? If their hands are hanging at their side, do you notice that their, their fingers, some people get a twitch? You know, so some people start to clench and make a fist. Some people's eyebrow, how beautiful they may be, you know, they tend to move towards the center of their forehead, you know, and I'm told this morning there was a word used in my class. They said, people look mash up when they begin to be provoked. Wow. But then again, provoke also has also a positive meaning, doesn't it? Because sometimes, you know, somebody, scripture, to, as a matter of fact, in 2 Corinthians 9, uh, to its believers were at Achaia was asked to provoke one another, the Macedonians, so that they might give more. You know, in other words, to encourage. That's a positive side of provocation. But we are told, fathers, provoke not your children. Now, how, how does that, that's okay to be said, but how does one provoke a child? Here's a general view, I think. You can provoke your child by anything that ruins your child's confidence in God. Anything that ruins your child's confidence in God is a provocation. And that is, again, to aggravate, to inflame, to challenge, or to challenge to a fight. Failing to be content and helpful and hopeful in God is provocation. If children watch you and they notice that your focus is towards money, money is more important than God, then you are provoking your children in a negative sense. If recreation is more important to recreate rather than to spend time fellowshipping with God's people, then you are provoking your children. If, and I'm in a context where it's important to talk about children and their, about their self-confidence, but if you are telling the child that their confidence is in themselves, then you are provoking your children. I, I had a student who was in my class, he was 11 years old, and he came to class one day and I noticed something about his demeanor that was different. After I pulled him aside and I asked him, what's happening? He said, I want to be 18. <laughs> what's so magical about 18? I think I passed that and didn't know when. <laughs> so what's so unique about you wanting to be 18? I listened, this was during the break time. And he said he wanted to be 18 because when he becomes 18, he can get a car. And when he gets a car, he's going to take the car and he's going to drive it and he's going to kill his father with the car. He's 11. Something has been happening in his life that he thought at 18, I'm 18, I can get a car. A car is something that has power. His dad used to drive a jitney, but his dad used to abuse his mother. 
in his presence. And obviously he was hurt, but he felt helpless. There was nothing he can do about it until he gets 18. I'm happy to report to you today the father is still driving a jitney, and the son is in his 30s. If a father comes in who is unpredictable, impulsive, hostile, with his discipline, provokes a child to become fearful, bitter, deceitful, and discouraged, they, are, they say to themselves, what's the use? Being good is no better than being bad. I had another student who ran away from home. As a matter of fact, Jade's brother ran away from home when he was five. He was not pleased with some orders that was given out, so he decided he's leaving home. Well, we told him it's okay. You know, the only thing he had, he can carry with what was on his back on a teddy bear. So we opened the door and we let him out. And he proceeded to walk out. We were in this place where there was a fencing gate. He could hardly unlatch the gate. Of course, his mother was looking and said, what you doing? You letting that boy go? This was in the evening, around 5.30, 6 o'clock. But he wanted to leave because he could not abide by the rules of the house. So we let him go. All right, he got to the fence, couldn't get it out. But of course, there were some other things he wanted to carry, like other toys and things. Well, they were conditional toys, rather you stay in the house. But obviously, that didn't last very long, so he came back, knocked on the door. Of course, as usual, you shouldn't open the door to strangers. <laughs> so we did ask, um, who's there? And the answer was me. Now, of course, <laughs> all good parents know that you would teach your children not to open the door to persons who say their name is me. So we did not let him in until, of course, his uh, mother came to his aid, you know, but um, that was short-lived. But there's another student, again, in my class, who uh, ran away from home. I didn't know because I went to uh, another event that evening, and um, I got a call when I, just before I got home. My wife called and said, there is a student who is in Elizabeth Estates. Now, I lived at that time in Seabreeze, in the little Hyde Park area, and the student was looking for me. Of course, in the discharge and course of my class, I must have mentioned the area that I lived in. A name, I'm gonna call her Rebecca, because you might know her. Anyway, she was a close friend, another student in my class who was a magistrate, one of the Supreme Judge children, foreign, uh, personality, but was in my class, so I knew those two were pretty close. When I got the call that this child was in Elizabeth Estates, was found by another teacher. Here's how it worked out. When I left, I decided I'm going to go back to Elizabeth Estates to the teacher's house, listen to, uh, find out what's going on. What actually happened is this. This little girl was being abused by her parent, and she said that she couldn't, this was like the last straw she can handle. So instead of going home after school, she decided she's going to come and find my house. Now, she lived between well, Saxon Way in the back here. I was teaching at a school on Blue Hill Road South, middle of Blue Hill Road. The child left and just headed east, eventually getting into Elizabeth Estates. Fortunately, there was another teacher 
and Elizabeth Estates, who taught at the same school I was teaching at. This little girl, 10 years old, went knocking on doors, asking if Mr. Fowler is there. That is so scary just the thought about that, you know, but that was the reality. And then it was after age, I guess, because I was told when I got from my event around nine that she was there, I went, looked for her, picked her up, and then be able to tell you what she revealed to me. Why didn't you go home? I know when I get home, my mother, she's going to kill me. Well, you know, that's the vernacular. But what did you do? Nothing. My oldest brother, he will tell her that I didn't do something, and she doesn't listen to me. I don't have a voice. She's going she's to beat me again. So this was obviously a daily routine. So she was looking for me. She wanted to live with me. Well, I found, I got her, and I drove back. On my way back, I stopped to the judge's house, and he was out because I just wanted some advice from him before I take the child back home, but he was not present. So I decided I'm going to take, I have to take you back home, Rebecca. And I did, and I parked before I get to the house or to the edge of the corner. I told her, where's the house? And she pointed it to me. I went, I walked. She said, but she's, she said, when you leave, she's going to beat me badly. I said, let me, let me deal with that. Um, I'll tell her not to. She said, still going to happen. So I left her in the vehicle, and I walked through the corner, went to the house. Now, now listen, folks. This child should have been home by 3.20, just about. That's the distance it took to get there if you walk straight home, 3.20, 3.25. And this is now after 9.30, almost quarter to 10. When I got to the porch, of course, I can see through the window, the mother was laying on the floor watching TV. I knocked, hello. Obviously, the mother had not seen me before. So when she looked, you know, little... Well, shorter lady than me, um, opened the door, um, and I introduced myself. I said, I am Mr. Fowler. I am the teacher of your, your daughter, Rebecca. Where? And she said, oh, are we looking for her? I know where she is. <laughs> we looking for her. She's on the ground watching TV. You see. So if she's on the ground watching TV, she's looking for her. She said, I thought maybe she went to her grandmother. Yeah, but you can call and check. This is your 10-year-old girl out in the night. No check. Well, I said, I introduced myself. I said, I, I, she's with me. She said, where? She, then she got up, and I told her, she's in my car. But she is afraid that you're going to punish her severely, even though you may be talking to me nicely now. When I leave, then you're going to give her peace. You can cut her skin and all the mother words we use. Um, she said, no, 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 daddy. That's, I, that's not going to happen. So I said, now please, you, I, I'm going to take your word that that won't happen. You have to think, what was the reason for her even wanting to run away? You frightened her, you provoked her to the point that she is fearful that even to come home. And the risk that she took, walking just generally in a direction where she does not even know where she's going. And I'm saying fortunately, but I believe by God's own provocation and divine planning that he's allowed her to hit on the door of a teacher who knew me, that can call me. And still, you're far from, she's already passed where I was, if she's already in Elizabeth Estates, for me to be able to connect with her and bring her back home. My concern, I said, I'm, make sure when she comes to school in the morning, I'm going to ask the same question, 
you know, and let me tell you, if, because if she is, then I'm going to take this to the authority. But I don't want to threaten you, because when I leave, I need you to promise me that you will not punish her. She said she won't. The short of the story was, well, she didn't. Because the girl came back to school the next time I asked her how was the evening. She said, okay, did you get something to eat? Yes. And it went well. But that's only the sample that I was privileged to be a part of very closely and intimately in my class. But how many other children are in families where they are abused or provoked? Maybe by both parents, but in this case, by this mother. Fathers do the same thing. I could tell you if I had the time, if that officer was not present, who I told you handcuffed me earlier, I would have told you about one in Fox Hill who came to school in the morning when I came and she came, he came with a backpack and his clothes was unfixed. And when he came to my class or in the school, I checked, scanned, and see if you properly attire. And he came and he said, I'm not, and he's trying to fix himself before I see him. And then I said, what's happened? And he said, my mother tried to chop me with the cutlass last night. And I said, so how did you sleep? He said, I, I didn't. I was staying up all night because she was drunk. So I said, look, come inside so we get a call. There's a lot of issues. Again, parents, fathers in particular, do not provoke your children. Every child today in prison reflects to some degree the impact or lack thereof of his home or particularly his father. Breaking their spirit of moral hope and replacing it with cold, calculated, deceitful, discouraged choreography. What you see when you hear about the amount of crime in our country, where's that coming from? If you can trace it back, it has a point in the family. Let me go quickly to the you and then bring this to a close. God says, fathers, provoke not your children. Why? The purpose for the command. Least they become discouraged. Conversely, God expects fathers to rear children who are not discouraged, as opposed to children who are discouraged. The goal of a godly father is to raise children that are not discouraged. What do I mean by that? Having a sense of hopelessness, moroseness, Downcast. Do you see children who look dejected, depressed, nervous, jittery, always on the edge of something? You know, these are the people who we see resignation towards life. They have no expectation of living the next. And sometimes, it's simply the simple words you know. Do you, your father ever tell you you're weak like a church rat? Now, I don't know how they tell the difference between rats who don't come to church and then rats that are not in church. But well, from the big yard where I come from, they used to use that phrase frequently. You're as weak as a church rat. Now, I know a church rat weaker than school rat or other residential rat. But you have to be careful the words you use to a child. It will either uplift or it will put them down. Instead, parents and specifically fathers, we should rear children that are the opposite of being discouraged. In other words, what will that look like? What was your, think about your own children. Are they encouraged? Are they fortified? Are they courageous? Are they confident? Are they optimistic? Are they excited, cheerful, hopeful? Do they feel like you have your support? Do they feel like they are a hero? What will be their story? There's nothing unique about these words, you know like courageous and confident, there's nothing Christian about them. But of course, when you add God to the equation, there's a radical transformation. There is an eternal difference because now you are encouraged in God, you are fortified in God, you are courageous in God, you are confident in God, you are optimistic in God, you are excited and cheerful and hopeful and supported in and by God. The world says, don't discourage a child. 
build up his self-esteem. The Bible says, don't discourage a child. Build up his God esteem. My, my, how a simple set of words in the mind of a father can outweigh the best intentions than the hard work and even the sacrifice of a great father. I wonder what will your child's story be when they tell their story. We've heard a little bit about um, some of our children who wrote about their fathers this morning. In conclusion, fathers, provoke not your children. Least they become vexed. You ever see somebody vexed, mad, frustrated, discouraged? I know this might be a difficult thing to do, but I encourage you, fathers, provoke not your children, lest they become vexed, frustrated, discouraged. And so in the words of Edward Mote, the hymnist, or the hymnologist, let them know that your hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. Tell them that you dare not trust the sweetest frame but that you are wholly leaning on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All, all other ground is a sinking sand. And so through this admonition and command and proclamation to fathers, even though it might seem unsurmountable, I encourage you in the words of Isaiah, chapter 40, verse 31. But they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like an eagle. They shall run and not become weary. They shall walk and not Amen. faint. Amen.